God, we thank you that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, that he wasn't a crazy man and he wasn't a liar. He is, in fact, Lord. And I thank you that by following his way, following his teaching, we have (coughs) access to the kingdom of God that shouldn't be accessible to us because of who we are and everything that we've done, but we thank you that your grace invites us into that kingdom that Christ made a way. He, he opened the door for us. And um, I pray that we would seek that wisdom and live according to it. And our lives would be blessed because we have fellowship with God. Um, I thank you for the gospel of Mark that allows us to see Christ in his ministry. And I pray that as we read this, our lives would conform to his teaching. We would come to have greater confidence in him and his way that we would trust in him and find joy and meaning in him and so as we look at your word lord we ask that you would bear fruit from this time in christ's name amen amen all right well we're in mark chapter four i don't think we quite finished the parable of the mustard seed so We'll just kind of touch on a few more things here. Um, So Mark chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 30. It says, And Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground... Hi, everybody. Welcome. Is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So I think kind of the key idea here is that the kingdom of God is expansive in nature. It grows, it overtakes the garden. It's something that you would probably initially kind of pass by, right? A mustard seed, you wouldn't think much about it, but latent in it is incredible potential. And this is the reality of the kingdom of God. I hope you understand that you're living in that now. If your faith is in Christ, you are already living in the shade of this tree, if you will. Um, It's not, I mean, the fullness is yet to come in the resurrection and life everlasting, but the kingdom of God is already growing. It's already present. It's already at work. It's already subverting the garden, taking over. So I think there's an interesting little thing here at the end of verse 33. It says, as they were able to hear it, right? With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. What do you think that means? Is the word hear literal? Like they've got some earwax and if they pull that out, then they'll be able to hear it. Yeah, as much as they were willing, as much as they were able to understand, as much as they could comprehend, right? So, 
this is why it's important for us to kind of just read scripture carefully and slowly. Jesus isn't saying they had, um, you know, they were deaf. He's saying that these are things that are pen- they're, they're penetrating in nature. They they take a, a, a measure of responsiveness and deep understanding. Um, what what would impact their understanding? I mean, level of education or who he was talking to or what all? I mean, what would impact? That? Yeah, what would impact their understanding? That's a good question. I don't think that it has to do with education. Um, I think it has to do with a couple things. You use the word willing, right? Kimberly used the word willing. So their willingness to receive it, um, their willingness to think carefully about it. What does it mean, right? Jesus is not saying here that the kingdom of God is a political kingdom where he's going to establish his rule as you know on a throne over a a kind of governmental administration. But more than anything, and I'm glad you brought that up because there's a couple cross-references. John 16, verses 12 through 15, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Things like, hey, Peter, I'm going to die on a cross. Peter's like, no, 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 that's not for you, Jesus, right? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. So I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the biggest element that they were really lacking was the indwelling revelation of the Holy Spirit to open their minds, to illumine their minds to understand these things, right? I mean, they could get it. Okay, Jesus, we get it. Like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small, but it's going to be big, right? But what is that kingdom of God? I don't think at this point they they comprehended that because they didn't yet have the Spirit. Is that helpful? Okay. But... This reality is kind of true for us as well. The more we submit ourselves to the teaching of Jesus, the more we're able to handle these things and understand them, the more we can kind of immerse ourselves in this. Um, I would say it's a bit like lifting weights, right? If I used to lift weights, it's been a long time. If I went into the gym tomorrow and tried to, I don't know, bench press even 150 pounds, I would probably struggle with that. But if I were to start with 100 pounds and kind of work my way up, eventually I would be able to lift more, right? And so I think the teachings of Jesus are like this. The more you press into them, the more you're able to comprehend them. You exercise that muscle and you become capable of more. There's another reference, John 8:32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So how do you know the truth? This is really important because people misquote this verse all the time. Oh, the truth will set you free. Well, physics is a kind of truth, but is that what this is referring to? No. No, right? That's truth about the material world, but that's not what Jesus has in mind here. Notice the connection to, if you abide in my, this is John 8, 32, if you abide in my 
word, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? So this truth is connected to abiding in God's word. And the more you abide, the more you come to understand the truth, the more you come to perceive it, the more, <clears throat> the more you're able to apply it to life and circumstances and walk in it, live according to it, and there's freedom in that. So abiding in the word of Jesus is what gives us access to truth. But this is not just knowing. This is really important. This is not just knowing. This is doing. You can go, I've probably mentioned this before, but you can go to secular universities and there are professors there who teach Bible, who probably know more about the Bible than you do, but they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. And so all that access to truth is meaningless for them because they don't put into practice the things of Jesus. They just study them like you might look at you know, a parasite under a microscope or something like that. So I, I continue to use this mantra, if you will, and I think it's really helpful that wisdom requires three things. So the first thing is that it requires that you know God. The fool says in his heart there is no God. So you cannot be wise if you do not acknowledge that there is a God. That's step one. Step two is to know what pleases this God, right? You may acknowledge that there is a God, but if you don't know what pleases him, then how are you possibly ever going to be in his good graces? How are you ever going to be favored by him? And then, of course, the third piece of this would be that you do what he commands. So if you know there is a God and you even know what pleases him, but you don't do it, you're still a fool. That's why Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. The wise man is like a man who goes and builds his house on a, or sorry, if you hear these words and you do them, you will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. If you hear these words of mine and you do not do them, then you're like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Okay? So, the disciples were sort of progressively, as they walked with Jesus, growing in their ability to understand these things. <clears throat> You know, this is kind of why towards the end of his ministry in the upper room discourse in John, like 15 through 17, Jesus begins to say things like, look, I washed your feet. I'm your master. You're not greater than me. Go do likewise. Or he begins to say things like the spirit will lead you in truth. Right. Um, yeah. I wonder, though, too, if there might be a little... Any, any thoughts, questions, comments on any of that? Okay. I, I, I want to prevent... There is a group of people who call themselves Christians who supposedly know what pleases God, but they don't do it. And if that's you, then you're not a Christian. Like, you are not, you are not living a life of wisdom. You're not living in the truth. You're not abiding in Christ. You're actually hearing the words of Jesus and then not doing them like a fool building your life on the sand. Uh, and that's not a threat. That's just a call to like be prepared when the whole foundation comes crumbling down because you're not actually living in the truth. Okay, but I wonder if there's also a connection here to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, where he says, do not give dogs what is holy, 
And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Right? I mean, if Jesus had just thrown open for his disciples at this point a, a glass window into heaven and eternity and all of the things of God, I wonder if that actually would have served them. In the sense that, what, what could they even have done with that information? They weren't prepared to even receive it. Right? And Paul even says that he was caught up into the third level of heaven and he saw things there that God does not even permit him to speak about to other men. I wonder why that is. Maybe is it because we're not able to hear those things yet. Does that make sense? Um, and so I think what I'm kind of pressing towards here is I think like Jesus that it's probably wise for us to be discerning in what and how we teach people when. Now, I'm not suggesting that we withhold any truth or information from people. You know, that's what cults do. You have to like progress into this certain level of commitment before they'll disclose these deep, dark secrets to you. I think that that's misleading and weird. So I'm not suggesting that we withhold information from people, but you know, where does Jesus begin with his teaching? Do you remember this all the way back in the early chapter of Mark? Repent, Repent and, believe, and believe. Right? So, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Like, if you're trying to tell somebody about the kingdom of God and you go right to eschatology, end times theology, like, is that something that a person who's ignorant of the faith of Christianity is able to really, like, wrap their mind around? Probably not. Now, there might, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying you should never do that. There might be a bridge to that, right? If somebody's like, man, I'm just anxious that we're sitting at the end of the world right now. We got China and oh, all this stuff. Okay, well, then you can connect that to the kingdom of God and say, let me tell you about a kingdom that transcends these things that you're worried about. But we, we should begin with what people are able to understand. There's a God. You are accountable before him. You should repent, and you should place your faith in this God, right? And then as they begin to trust and follow him, then we can begin to talk about things that are more complicated, more complex. I heard a, a teacher say, when you're teaching your kid to tell time, you don't need to take apart the watch. You teach them how to do this, but you can learn how to take apart a watch and how time is kept. That's a really good illustration. Yeah, if you're teaching your kid to tell time, you don't need to pull out all the little gears inside the watch, right? You can show them the hands and begin there. And, and then, yeah, at some point, if you want to, take the watch apart. That's a great illustration. I love it. Or like a baby, start with the milk and slowly progress to solid food. Yes, totally. And that's a biblical illustration there, right? Um, you know, we can, as people begin to be able to bear it, we can teach them deeper theological truths, you know, about... God's sovereignty and our ongoing need for repentance. Repentance is not a one-time thing. We can teach them kind of deeper practices in obedience, those kinds of things. But I would say, tragically, a lot of churches fail to even teach the basics. You know, if you listen closely to some churches, they're not even teaching a gospel of repent and believe. They're teaching... You know, here's three three tips to make your career more successful. You know, those kinds of things. That's not even 
That's not even the basics of the gospel. Or happiness. Yeah, or here's how to feel better about yourself, right? They're very like, this is all about you, and God's here so that you can feel better about yourself. Um, a lot of people stop at the basics. Too. Yeah, and that's that's the next thing I was gonna say is a lot of times the, the basics are that's it, right? There there are, I mean, I've I've had a pastor say to me before, I don't like to teach my people theology. I think that that's confusing and it's not helpful. I'm like, the whole Bible is the, like if you're teaching the Bible, you're teaching theology, right? Yeah. Um, and that's super condescending too. Like I'm the intelligent pastor, I can understand these things, but my lay people, they're too ignorant for that. So, yeah, many churches also never go beyond the more kind of milkish elementary teachings. And we see that problem even in Scripture, right? In Hebrews it mentions, I should be teaching you deeper things, but I'm still teaching you the milk. I was a Episcopalian for, for many years, and, uh, of course, the, the homily, comfortable words, and that's basically what they were. And mm. when I moved on to uh, the Presbyterian Church, I was amazed that they actually pulled the Bible out and talked on it. Yeah. Very yeah. yeah. It's kind of prevalent in lots of churches. I mean, you know, when I start preaching, I say, like, pull out your Bible, and if you don't have one, we have them over there. Because if you were to stand at the door and you were watch, you were to watch a lot of like first-time guests who come through. They don't bring their Bible, yeah. you know, because because the expectation culturally is you can go to church and you don't need a Bible. Um, or there's a lot of church that, you know, is just a topical. I, I came from a topical church, preach topic all the time. But then when I get here to the U.S. and we end up in a really a verse-to-verse -verse teaching in the Bible, I was like, whoa, I mean, I'm not going back to a topical. Yeah. Because it's just blow my mind yeah. that it, the church teaching verse by verse. Yeah. And I, I would argue that there's a place for some topical teaching only because, you know, if you if you do kind of verse by verse like we do, I mean, like we're doing in Genesis, right? There's a lot of things we're going to touch on as we go through Genesis, but we're taking a break right now to deal with some topical things. And part of the reason is because you can literally spend years in a book mm -hmm. and not touch on certain topics that might need to be touched on. But the danger with just topical teaching is you can avoid the stuff that you wouldn't want to teach on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. so the application I think here is hear the teachings of Jesus, <clears throat> receive them, meaning don't doubt them, and then seek to understand them and live by them. And the more that we hear these things, the more that we accept them, place our confidence in them, live in accordance with them, the more that we're going to see the kingdom of God realized in our lives. Right? I mean, how many of you who have been walking with Jesus for a while would look back at kind of the early days of your walk with Jesus and be like, man, that was a mustard seed. But now you see this, this thing that has grown and is expansive even in your own life, right? So, yeah, the, um, maybe another application here is the kingdom has come, it is coming, and it will come. All of those things are true. And so the question then is, what will be our relationship to that kingdom? Are we going to stand outside of it? Are we going to be in opposition to it? Or are we going to dwell in it?
And then in Matthew 21, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I'm not sure I totally understand what that even means. But I think that, I think I would make an argument that's, that part of it is, Jesus is going to get you either way, right? Either you're going to stumble upon him and you're going to be wrecked. And that wrecking will lead you into the kingdom of God. Or he will crush you because he is reality, right? And that might mean that you're crushed outside of the kingdom of God. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Any other thoughts, questions, comments, any of that? Last word. Okay, then let's read on. Verse 35. And I like to invite people to read, but for the sake of the um, recording, I'm, I'm just doing the reading because I am super loud. So, Verse 35, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking in the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? My son Aiden, for like as long as he has been alive, has been able to get in the car and fall asleep in like 30 seconds. I mean, it's like ridiculous. Like we're not even out of our neighborhood before he's sleeping in the car. And Jesus kind of makes me think of that here. What, what, what ridiculous faith must he have had in God to just be able to sleep like this? So I think this is a little peek into what life in the kingdom of God is like. And also a picture of our king. right? So just filled with trust in his heavenly father that when everyone else around him is panicked, he's just passed out in the front of the boat. I would probably be puking over the side because of motion sickness. And Jesus is just asleep. So before we get into that, uh, everywhere Jesus went, crowds stalked him. They wanted to be near him. Jesus was often trying to get away from people. And I think that they were enamored with Jesus because of celebrity status. Uh, you know, here's a guy who can heal sick people. He can make bread kind of materialize out of nothing. He can feed great crowds of people. He likes to upset people with power and say things that are a little bit wacky. Um, but their kind of obsession with him for his celebrity status, I think, really highlighted their lack of understanding. Right? They, I mean, we kind of just talked about, like, understanding the kingdom of God. These people did not. They, they were looking for something that was more material in nature. 
But Jesus hadn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He'd come to establish a spiritual kingdom. So these crowds, unfortunately, were setting their sights too low. Um, which, talking about the kind of thing that churches are teaching people, isn't it true that they're setting their sights too low? And I'm not... I say these kinds of things just, I don't know, because it's worth talking about, but I don't mean to, like, bash other churches. But, you know, if, if, if people are going to a church where they're saying, here's, you know, five tips to be a better parent, that's important, but in, in light of the kingdom of God... Shouldn't we be offering people so much more than just kind of a band-aid over their difficult material life? So is anybody aware of the geographic nature of the Sea of Galilee? How it's kind of shaped? The topography of it? Has anybody been there? You've been there? Yeah. Can you kind of describe it at all? No. Okay. Well... So I think what's going on here is Jesus is traveling kind of from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which that kind of northeast region would be more Gentile cities. And you can kind of look up pictures of this. The topography on the west side is more kind of gradual sloping down to the water, whereas the east side is a pretty steep slope. And so it would cause this kind of phenomenon where the winds would come kind of whipping down the steep east side and create some pretty intense weather patterns. Um, and we know what that looks like even living in Maricopa, right? I mean, the wind can get crazy. Imagine some of the storms that blow through here just on a, on a lake. Um, but, uh, well, before I get into that, let, let me also mention the, the symbolism of kind of the sea. Have we talked about this before? Does anybody know what, what the sea sort of symbolized in the ancient world? People. Gentiles. No, no. Maybe, maybe those things are true, but, but I'm talking about like the ocean, the Sea of Galilee, large bodies of water. So uh, there's an interesting book I have called The Symbolism of the Ancient Near East. And it has a lot of details about this. That um, in the ancient world, the, the sea or the ocean or large bodies of water symbolize death and chaos. The forces of chaos and death. Which is interesting, too, why you have these ancient um, flood stories. And, and usually those stories end with some kind of god wrangling the forces of chaos to bring things into order. Uh, that's present too in like ancient Near Eastern creation narratives, like from the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So, and, and this I think is why Revelation says that in the new heaven and the new earth there will be no sea, no ocean. I don't think it's being literal because you got a river <laughs> that runs through the, the city, right? River's got to run somewhere, um, which maybe that's even also figurative. But I think what Revelation is pointing to in that passage is that there will be no chaos, no death. The, the old Jonah thing, he goes down into Sheol. Yeah, right. right. The ocean, the realm of, of the dead. So, uh, you know, in some ways, I think that what we're getting here is a picture not only of Jesus showing his power and authority over the realm of nature, that's absolutely true, but also kind of in a, in a metaphorical sense, his power over the realm of uh, chaos, the realm of death. 
But these were guys who spent their life on the water. Like, what kind of storm must have this have been? It clear. It certainly wasn't their first. So I think this this must be a, a kind of exceptional storm. Um, and yet Jesus has no anxiety about being caught in the middle of it. So I think the reason why this comes in the text at this point is Jesus just gave us some teachings about the kingdom of God and now he's going to illustrate it. What does, what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? Well, chaos surrounds you, worry, anxiety, fear, death is lurking, nature is pressing down on you. And what's Jesus doing? Sleeping. Sleeping, right? He's just resting. So this is, I think, a beautiful like living illustration of what the kingdom of God is like. And that's contrasted with the view of the disciples. What do they say is happening to them? They're perishing. Jesus, we're dying here. How can you be napping in the boat? Do you think they're being dramatic? Most of the time. Sometimes they are. I I wonder in this scene, though. I, I think they literally thought that they were kind of on the verge of death. But maybe they're just talking with hyperbole to show Jesus that he's being absurd as he's sleeping in the boat. And so there's a beautiful picture of Jesus resting in the care of his father while his disciples are consumed with worry. And again, it makes me think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, why do you worry? By worrying, you can't add a single hour to your life. Uh, did I already talk about how I'm jealous of my dog? No. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can't be the only person who goes through life experiencing anxiety, right? I mean, there's lots of things to be anxious about. And I don't know. I sometimes look at my dog just like sleeping on my office floor while I'm anxiously responding to emails. I'm like, I'm so jealous. I wish I could be my dog. Like, what does my dog worry about? Like, it's got food in the morning and water, and it just gets to, like, run around and, like, poop wherever it wants, and it has no problems, right? I'm like, and then I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I could be just like that, mm-hmm. right? I have a master who has promised to care for all of my needs and has told me that I don't need to worry and that everything that happens to me is intended for my good. So I literally could be like that. Um, The problem is not the circumstances that I find myself in. The problem is the decision that I make in my mind as to what I'm going to dwell on. That's amazing how how you said that. That's just uh, the other day I was like, after I fed my dog and walked them, and they're so relaxed, and you know, they're like, and I was like, I wish I could be like that. And I know, instantly, right? instantly, then there is like, like there is a voice like, I am here taking care of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm smiling when yeah, you're saying absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, you of little faith. I know. Why? Why? 
Yeah, why are you, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Um, and it's interesting then that they, what happens to their fear? Look at, look at verse 41. So, so look at, look at this. Um, uh, Transfers from wind to the man. That's exactly right. The fear doesn't go away. It just gets put in the right place. <clears throat> They're no longer afraid of the circumstances in the wind. They now become afraid of this man who has power even over those things. And that's why that's where it should be, right? I mean, it's the verse do not fear the one who can throw your body into the grave, but God can control both body and soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't fear the one who can throw your. Sorry, say it again. Don't, I don't, I'm summarizing. Don't fear man. Yeah. You can only destroy the body. But right. God can destroy both the body, body and the soul. soul. Right. Um, and then what can man do to me is another you know, Psalms. Yeah. You hear a lot in this culture, in, in the Christian subculture right now. Or I guess I hear this. Maybe other people don't. But this is something I feel like I've picked up on. This idea that like, well, look, if the church doesn't present itself to the world in this way, what will people think about us? And a much better question is, what will Jesus think about me if I do this or that, or I say this or that, right? Um, you know, what will my boss think if they discover the thing I posted on Facebook that's pro-Jesus, that Bible verse, right? Who cares? Who cares? What we should think about is, what will Jesus think about me, right? Our fear should not be in anything in this world but our fear should be directed towards God, that, that he would be well-pleased with us. Right. Sounds like you're preaching to yourself. Probably. <laughs> Probably. But I just hate it when I hear Christian elites, intellectuals say, well, what will the world think? Mm -hmm. Well, if it comes at the expense of what Jesus thinks, then I don't care. Right? I mean, I certainly want people to see in me Jesus. So I do I do care what people see, but not not at the expense of what Jesus approves. <clears throat> and you know their their question uh, at the end of verse 38 teacher do you not care that we are perishing? And of course Jesus cares that they're perishing, but he's much more concerned about a different kind of perishing. Isn't he? The perishing that man suffers when man turns his back on God, doesn't trust what God commands, doesn't um, cling to God throughout the course of life. And uh, obviously in our trials, God does care. But he doesn't always alleviate the trials, does he? Well, just like just like them, we are we are very entrenched in the here and now, um, and I mean, we can help that. I mean, that's just where we are. But that's that's what they're exhibiting here. They're they're focused on what's happening right here, right now, and rather than the broader picture. Yeah, 
Absolutely. That's and, totally and they true. would be, I guess, at this point. I mean, that's not the fault of theirs. It's just, you know, that's what we do. That's yeah. We do. Yeah. In some respects, being that they still don't really understand he's God, you know, like obviously by their, they keep going back to the same pattern. I don't know that he's, they're saying, don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care that we're going to die? They're saying, don't you care that we are going to die? How, you know, you need to be acting like us. Yeah. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah. It just goes to the sovereignty of like, we're not going to die before God's ready for us to die. So what the heck are we freaking out of that? Same with like, this is a stupid symbol of the that now, one to one, but global warming and stuff. The world is not going to end before God wants it to end. Right. What are you fretting about? Yeah. You're a Christian. I mean, seed time and harvest will not pass until the God says, I mean, kind of the same thing, and that's how Jesus is acting. He knows he's going to die, but not before the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's also very good. Um, and, and of course, God does care through all of these things. I mean, Jesus could have stepped into the boat and said, guys, there's going to be a storm. But I'm going to go ahead and calm that thing right now so that we have, you know, a peaceful trip across the, the sea. And, but because God cares, he takes us through the trials. Does that make sense? God's concern is not that we as Christians would have a comfortable, peaceful, easy life, but that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would see him rightly. And so as Christians, it's important for us to understand that God may calm the storms in response to our prayers, but a lot of times, most of the time, he doesn't. And the reason is because he cares enough to put us through that crucible that we might be made in the image of Christ. So if he would have told them beforehand, hey, there's going to be a storm, I'm going to be resting, don't worry, that right? And, and gave them the whole outlook of how it's going to end, right? It's going to be fine. They didn't have scripture like we have scripture. We can see the end, right? We yeah. can see all these things. They didn't. They didn't have that, right? So yeah. they can. I think they still would have doubted. No, <laughs> and and the, and one because we that's like just our nature, right? But two because Jesus said, "I'm going to go to the cross, guys. Like I'm going to die." And they're like, "Nah, <laughs> that's not going to happen." Okay. It also says in. Uh, at the end of verse 39, <clears throat> Jesus says, peace, be still. It, it, it's interesting that it says he rebuked the wind. Peace, be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, did anything really change? Well, the wind stopped. Circumstantially, things changed. But why was Jesus resting before he calmed the winds and the wave? Where was he in that moment? He was already in a great calm, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, yeah, why are you anxious? Why are you afraid? Um, Jesus was asleep because in the midst of the chaos around him, he was... He was already living in, in, in this calm that is the kingdom of God, under the sovereign goodness and the sovereign love of his Father. And even after, after everything calmed down, they were not really that calm. They still did not rest. They were still conflicted. And sure. Sure. That's interesting. I think that's a good message, um, especially for our youth. 
because I think they hear through many places and voices that this life is about being happy, being comfortable. And so when things, when bad things happen, it's like, wh where is God? Where is, like, why? Yeah. Um, yet, we know that we're going to go through circumstances that are going to be hard, and sometimes maybe your heart will break, yet God is God, and yeah. he's good. Amen. Yeah. I went to a wedding one time, and the minister at the wedding, he talked to the bride and groom about, you know, your goal is not to be happy, and then he went on to talk about some other stuff. I don't, I don't even remember what he said. He expounded on that a little bit, but I kind of stopped listening at that point, and I, and I just thought about that and thought about that. And it's kind of what you're saying. Our goal is not happiness, yeah. per se. You want to be happy, of course, but th there's a bigger picture. There's more that you're looking for. Yeah. What do people even mean by that? Like, I, I'm sincerely asking, what does that even mean? Like, if our culture says, you know, you should, you should be happy. If you're, you're. Yeah. What does it mean? It's not just content. They, they're not talking about just being content. What are they talking about? Yeah. Is it, is it like a sense of euphoria? Like you should go through life constantly feeling euphoric. Like, I don't know a single person whose life is like that. Nobody, right? And you can look at rich people and they're terribly unhappy. And you can look at poor people and they're unhappy. You can look at people who've achieved things and they're unhappy. And you can look at people who sit around and lazy and they're unhappy. Like, what does it even mean to pursue a life of happiness? I don't, I sincerely don't know what that means. I think it means, like, personally, I think it's like those glimpses because I, I think happiness happens like in, like little, portions you know when that time there is maybe i don't know maybe last five minutes where you're like extremely like smiling and everything seems around that is perfect but those are like little glimpses of that. i don't think happiness is like constant yeah you know and sometimes when you go ahead and argue or when someone calls you out then you think like oh that is mean but it's the most loving thing someone can be doing for that although it makes you it feels uncomfortable sometimes sure. Like, I don't like to argue with my husband, but sometimes we do. Praise God that we are able to forgive each other. Yeah. You know, and we can rejoice in that and have joy in that versus that happy, like, where it's smiling and like everything is sure. perfect around you. Know? Sure. Mm -hmm. That idea of like, you know, why does God's like things happen if we would change our paradigm yes. and say, especially Christian youth, like, right? This is. This is a test of God to, to see my faith. How am I going to, to react? And we have lots of examples of God testing faith. And Isaac, I mean, every, everything is a test of God to see whether you're going to remain faithful to him. So it's not some bad thing happening to you. It's, it's a test and passing. I think that's a more encouraging way to live your life than to just wonder why. It's, yeah. Is everything a test? Is everything a jurisdiction? I, I, I would say, in the grand scheme of things, your life is a, is a, is a test, and I even say that's the, the, um, the, te the tester is like, even Satan is called the tester, and, and he's testing, I mean, Job is a great example of that, just to test our faith, and I, I look at no temptation as overtakes as coming to man, but, you know, God will provide a way of escape, that's a test, you, you know the answer, there's either I get on my flesh, or I trust mm -hmm. that God provides escape, and then when I pass the test, I'm taking the thing that, I guess my question is, is God 
administering the test, or is just the test there? I mean, is it always just there? Both. Okay. I mean, James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, right? And Hebrews speaks about Jesus uh, learning obedience through the things that he suffered. I don't think that's saying he was disobedient so much as it's saying that he suffered these things and that put him at a crossroads and every time he proved himself obedient, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, I, I so, mean... So God says, I'm going to test you sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, when you read Job, like, I, I say this a lot, but God throws Job <laughs> under the bus, yeah, but right? Satan would... Yeah, go ahead. I just wonder, is he actually testing... Job. I mean, he kind of knew what Job, how Job was going to respond. Was the test really Job's test? Well, he yeah, knew, he knew what he, Abraham was going to do with Isaac too. I mean, he right. knows, but yet he acts like he didn't. You know, now I know that you love me. I mean, God can look past that and know yeah. that, but he's, he's it was for him for Abraham's benefit to understand what testing. Yeah. Absolutely. Did for him. Totally. Right. And, and you see Job confess at the end, you know, I thought I knew you by the hearing of the ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Right. Okay. right? And then Job goes and prays for his friends and God is relent, you know, relents. But I, I think like to bring this kind of back to this idea of happiness, man has no happiness apart from God. Mm -hmm. Nope. Yep. None. And so all of these things are meant to direct us that way, you know, um, to, to prune off these things that drag us into directions that are different than towards God, right? So, I mean, it's just absurd for people to talk about happiness apart from the pursuit of God. There is no happiness apart from God. There are, there are experiences of kind of like emotional euphoria, those kinds of things, but Man is a creature that was made for the purpose of giving God glory. And so there's no meaning or happiness outside of that. Right. Isn't there a difference between joy and happiness? And that's like an education thing. We have joy as Christians versus having that temporal happiness, that, that dopamine hit. Yeah. And I, I think the important thing to understand there is like the world says you can only be happy if your circumstances are X, Y, or Z. Right? And the Christian worldview says, no, you can experience joy, contentment, peace, happiness, fulfillment, regardless of what's going on right, around you. It's a condition of your spirit, not just a feeling. Yeah, this is the kingdom of God. That even though you remain in the kingdoms of this world where things are chaotic, the, the boat is constantly rocking, you actually in your soul are in the kingdom of God. And there's peace there. And back to your point about like, everybody experiences unhappiness like if, if the goal is and we're called to do this pick somebody follow their example right watch your leaders and take their faith yeah. show me show me this person that has happiness that is so unique i, I haven't seen it and you live in that you live with sinners and so it, i mean it's kind of like um, i was listening to the Tom Soul talking about being he, he loves the idea of socialism, right? He goes, idea. Who is this? Thomas Soul. Oh, yeah. He goes, the idea of socialism is a beautiful thing. You know, everybody has equal. But the problem is it won't work because you live with sinful men. Therefore, yeah, that could be a great thing, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's an ideal thing to think everybody can be happy all the time, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. So let's move past that right. and say, yeah, let's talk about truth. Yeah. Not, right. 
There's got to be something greater than happiness. Yeah. If that's yeah. what you're chasing, it's a lost cause. It is. It that's exactly right. And that, that's kind of what I was getting at. Like, I honestly don't know what does this mean. Like, you tell me you want to be happy, but what do you mean by that? Because what you're asking for is impossible. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the drug addict who shoots up and for a couple of hours the heroin courses through the veins and they feel great. But then the next fix requires more. And when they come off the fix, they're, they're in a worse state than they were before. And you chase that cycle long, long enough, it leads to despair and death, you know? Do you think it's contentment more? People that say, I, I, you know, if I, if I only had this, I would be happy. If I only had this, I would be happy. And it's supposed to being content with... Not necessarily. So contentment is a piece of it. What I'm getting at, actually, is... And this, is, this may sound bad, but I think the person that's tapping at this the most right now in our culture is Jordan Peterson. Like, there is meaning in the suffering. There is purpose in the hardship, right? There is growth that is born out of the sadness. You know, and he's, I mean, he's touching on biblical themes, just not from a Christian perspective, but he's calling people to understand, like, there, there's this thing that you're describing, this euphoric experience of happiness, it doesn't exist. And so stop trying to find it and instead go through the pruning to see the fruit that comes from the other side, right? And yeah, because, I mean, that's the life Christ lived. Like, he knew, I think he knew from the moment he was first cognitive that the cross was where his life would end. I mean, or the joy set before him. Yes, he, he endured the cross, right? So, like, I, I think if there was no fall, that wouldn't be the case. But in this system where sin has broken everything, this is where it is, right? Um it's on the other side of the conflict, the trial, the suffering, the hardship, the heartbreak, the loneliness, which is helpful because then as you're going through it, you can say there's meaning here. This is not meaningless. It's not purposeless. Yeah, well, so you tell somebody, I want you to be happy. It's like it's some plateau that you're going to be on, which is not the case. Not yeah, the case. right. Yeah, we should... We should want people, I don't know, maybe a better word is like satisfied, like to just be satisfied in God. Godliness with contentment is breaking. Yeah. Or just, or just be content whatever your situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, I mean, that is true, and that's a way to say it, but like, <clears throat> I don't know, contentment doesn't quite do it because there is this deep experience of like, yeah, just joy. I mean, even happiness in God. Right? Like, I can have nothing else, but if I have him, I, I can be happy. Like Paul, he was satisfied in who Christ yeah. is, and no matter what he went through, he was yeah. okay. And so we can say, like, kind of happy. yeah, so we can You're say, like, whatever, no matter what happened before, I know Christ, and if that needed to happen, so then I know who God is, and praise be to God. Yeah. Maybe a way to kind of illustrate it from what we're talking about is, like, Stop looking at the boat, stop looking at the waves, stop looking at the wind, look at Christ. And then whatever is going on around you. What what's that hymn? Um well, there's the verse, see the verse and all these things. These things will be added to you, yeah. But there's like a, a a verse from a song. Why can't I think of it right now? It's like and when I look at him, all the cares of this life fade away. Yes, thank you. Why, sing it. Can you sing it? Because no. I can't do it. I can't do it in my head. <laughs> yeah, good. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Sing it. Sing it. Anything's a 
earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Right? Like, man, that's good musical theology right there. Psalm 4610. I encourage you to memorize it. It's very easy. Does anybody know it? Not to put anybody on the spot. Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. Right? That wouldn't take you more than an hour to memorize. Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. Right? That. Go ahead. Just the day the Lord made. Rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah. What's. Is that Psalm 93? I think it's 119. Is it 119? You know, I, I preached on that one a couple years ago, and, and uh, I realized as I was preaching on it, this is the day that the Lord has made. That psalm, if you read it closely, is prophetic about the crucifixion. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't diminish the truth that every day God made, and so be glad in it. But what is the day that God is most glad in? It's the one where his son is crucified, right? Like He's got the crushing. Yes. That's an incredible idea. So think about that in your own life. Where is God deeply pleased with you, it's in the suffering when your eyes remain steadfast on him. Right. I just want to look that up because I think... No, I agree with you. I think stick to the taking the verses out of my head. But again, like you said, I was kind of humbled in, in Hebrews because I always get upset, you know, irritated when I hear people use their life verses. Jeremiah, you know, but because, you know, that's talking to the Israel, right. Israelites. And then uh, in Hebrews, we were studying, and it says, uh, "Do not fear." I know, you know, it says, uh, "I'm with you always," or whatever. And that is specifically talking to Joshua about going to take the promise. And the Hebrews guy, whoever wrote Hebrews, applies it to the, the Christian. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. I got to lay off my. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's both and, right? Like, let's respect it in the context. Right. But if that is true of God's people, and we are God's people, then it is true of us, right? But yeah, I understand that. It's tough. And it's neither Psalm 119 nor Psalm 92. No. This is the day the Lord has made. So I, we should look it up. It's towards the end of Psalms because I just read it recently. Mm-hmm. Somebody want to find it while, while I wrap up here? Um, so the disciples are learning to rightly fear Jesus. Not the natural world, not the demonic world, not the the world of Caesar or the world of the Pharisees. Did you find it? 118. 118. You were close. Um, So the disciples are learning to rightly fear Jesus. And we could spend a whole bunch of time talking about what it means to fear him. But I I caution you not to say that it just means awe or reverence. Like, it does mean that, but it also just means fear, right? Like you were mentioning the verse... Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can cast the body and soul into hell. But there's, there is a sense when um, you come into Christ, there's a different kind of fear because perfect love casts out all fear. Yeah. And while we have that and should have had that, I think we have a different relationship with yeah. God now and we're not fearing him yeah. in the same way. It's still a reverential fear. It is. But it's not like a, I'm going to right. crush. It, 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 is the, it is the kind of relationship that it... A, a son should have to a good father, right? I think my kids know that, like, I would never do anything to intentionally harm them. Um, but I think they also fear me, <laughs> right? Like, in a, in a good way. So well, you fear the potential, I think, too. I mean, the potential when you witness the potential power of, say, a certain nation, even if it's your own nation. You know, you're you're secure 
I'm secure that my, my nation is not going to attack me, but I am in fear of what it will do to others. You know? Yeah, and maybe that's a motivating fear too to like not leave his side, right? right? To stay close to this God because you wouldn't want to displease him or, or wound him. You know? I really like the, the this analogy in regard to like it depends on your relationship to him and, and your uh, being in a car like on the freeway, right? When I'm on a car in the car on the freeway going with the traffic, doing 75 miles an hour, I'm not afraid at all. I, I mean, I'm going with the way things designed to go. But if you put me, just take me out of that car and stand me in that freeway in that lane, like, same position, same spot. I'm totally afraid because I'm out of the right relationship right. with the freeway house designed to be in that. That's mm -hmm. People should be fearing God. If you're in the right relationship with him, then you have nothing to fear. Although there's fear all around you, you know, like mm -hmm. it's dangerous all around you. If you get out of step with God, you should be totally afraid. Yeah, true. Amen. Well, let me kind of just summarize this chapter. Next week, we'll get into chapter five. Let's just remember that Mark's been painting a picture for us of the kingdom authority of Jesus, right? Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. He is the king in this kingdom. He has power over demons, power over physical ailments, the hearts of all men. He has the power to call them to himself and they come. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He has the power to resist the temptations of the evil one like he did in the desert at the beginning of his ministry. He has authority to preach and to teach things that are true and command people. He speaks words that are truth. And he also has the power and authority to assign tasks to others, right? Sending out the apostles. And now he's he's showing that he has authority over nature himself, himself nature itself, and I think also through the symbolism even the authority over chaos and death. So this is the picture of Christ and the kingdom that belongs to him that Mark has been painting for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this kingdom, and we thank you that we get to be part of it by grace through faith in what Christ has done for us. And man, what a good God you are to invite us into that. And I pray that we would be wise people who, who don't fear, who trust in Christ, who don't have little faith, but have great faith, not because of anything in us, but just because of the one in whom we place our faith. Um, so Lord, grow our faith, teach us to, to trust you and love you and follow you, and we ask these things under the authority of this King Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen.